0: Chapter 22 of The Purple Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Vena. The Purple Land by W. H. Hudson. Chapter 22 After leaving John and Candelaria's home of liberty and love, nothing further worth recording happened, till I had nearly reached the desired haven of the Lomas de Rocha, a place which I was, after all, never destined to see, except from a great distance. A day unusually brilliant, even for this bright climate, was drawing to a close, it being within about two hours of sunset, when I turned out of my way to ascend a hill with a very long ridge-like summit falling away at one end, appearing like the last sierra of a range just where it dies down into the level plain. Only in this instance the range itself did not exist. The solitary hill was covered with short tussocks of yellow, wiry grass, with occasional bushes, while near the summit large slabs of sandstone appeared just above the surface, looking like gravestones in some old village churchyard, with all their inscriptions obliterated by time and weather. From this elevation, which was about a hundred feet above the plain, I wished to survey the country before me, for I was tired and hungry. So was my horse, and I was anxious to find a resting-place before night. Before me, the country stretched away in vast undulations towards the ocean, which was not, however, in sight. Not the faintest stain of vapour appeared on the immense, crystalline dome of heaven. While the stillness and transparency of the atmosphere seemed almost preternatural. A blue gleam of water, south-east of where I stood, and many leagues distant, I took to be the Lake of Rocha. On the western horizon were faint, blue, cloud-like masses with pearly peaks. They were not clouds, however, but the sierras of the range weirdly named Cuchilla de las Animas, ghost-haunted mountains. At length, like a person who puts his binocular into his pocket and begins to look about him, I recalled my vision from its wanderings over illimitable space to examine the objects close at hand. On the slope of the hill, sixty yards from my standpoint, were some deep, Green dwarf bushes, each bush looking in that still brilliant sunshine as if it had been hewn out of a block of malachite, and on the pale purple solanaceous flowers covering them, some bumblebees were feeding. It was the humming of the bees coming distinctly to my ears that first attracted my attention to the bushes, for so still was the atmosphere that at that distance apart, sixty yards, two persons might have conversed easily without raising their voices. Much farther down, about two hundred yards from the bushes, a harrier hawk stood on the ground, tearing at something it had captured, feeding in that savage, suspicious manner usual with hawks, with long pauses between the bites. Over the harrier hovered a brown milvago hawk, a vulture-like bird in its habits, that lives by picking up unconsidered trifles. Envious at the other's good fortune, or fearing, perhaps, that not even the crumbs or feathers of the feast were going to be left, it was persecuting the harrier by darting down at intervals with an angry cry and aiming a blow with its wing. The harrier methodically ducked its head each time its tormentor rushed down at it, after which it would tear its prey again in its uncomfortable manner. Farther away, in the depression running along at the foot of the hill, meandered a small stream, so filled with aquatic grasses and plants, that the water was quite concealed, its course appearing like a vivid green snake, miles long, lying there, basking in the sunshine. At the point of the stream nearest to me, an old man was seated on the ground, apparently washing himself, for he was stooping over a little pool of water, while behind him stood his horse, with patient, drooping head, occasionally switching off the flies with its tail. A mile farther on stood a dwelling which looked to me like an old Estancia house, surrounded by large shade trees, growing singly or in irregular clumps. It was the only house near, but after gazing at it for some time I concluded that it was uninhabited. For even at that distance I could see plainly that there were no human beings moving about it, no horse or other domestic animal near, and there were certainly no hedges or enclosures of any description. Slowly I went down the hill and to the old man sitting beside the stream. I found him engaged in the seemingly difficult operation of disentangling a luxuriant crop of very long hair, which had somehow, possibly from long neglect, got itself into great confusion. He had dipped his head into the water, and with an old comb, boasting about seven or eight teeth, was laboriously, and with infinite patience, drawing out the long hairs, a very few at a time. After saluting him, I lit a cigarette, and leaning on the neck of my horse, watched his efforts for some time, with profound interest. He toiled away in silence for five or six minutes, then dipped his head in the water again, and while carefully wringing the wet out, he remarked that my horse looked tired. Yes, I replied. So is his rider. Can you tell me who lives in that estancia? My master, he returned laconically. Is he a good-hearted man, one who will give shelter to a stranger? I asked. He took a very long time to answer me, then said, He has nothing to say about such matters. An invalid, I remarked. Another long pause. Then he shook his head, and tapped his forehead significantly, after which he resumed his mermaid task. Demented, said I. He elevated an eyebrow, and shrugged his shoulders, but said nothing. After a long silence, for I was anxious not to irritate him with too much questioning, I ventured to remark, Well, they will not set the dogs on me, will they? He grinned and said that it was an establishment without dogs. I paid him for his information with a cigarette, which he took very readily, and seemed to think smoking a pleasant relief after his disentangling labours. An estancia without dogs, and where the master has nothing to say. That sounds strange, I remarked tentatively but he puffed on in silence. What is the name of the house, I said, after remounting my horse? It is a house without a name, he replied, and after this rather unsatisfactory interview, I left him and slowly went on to the Estancia. On approaching the house, I saw that there had formerly been a large plantation behind it, of which only a few dead stumps now remained, the ditches that had enclosed them being now nearly obliterated. The place was ruinous and overgrown with weeds. Dismounting, I led my horse along a narrow path through a perfect wilderness of wild sunflowers, whorehound, redweed, and thorn-apple, up to some poplar trees where there had once been a gate of which only two or three broken posts remained, standing in the ground. From the old gate the path ran on, still through weeds, to the door of the house, which was partly of stone and partly of red brick, with a very steep, sloping, tiled roof. Beside the ruined gate, leaning against a post, with the hot afternoon sun shining on her, uncovered head stood a woman in a rusty black dress she was about twenty-six or twenty-seven years old and had an unutterably weary desponding expression on her face which was colorless as marble except for the purple stains under her large dark eyes she did not move when i approached her but raised her sorrowful eyes to my face apparently feeling little interest in my arrival. I took off my hat to salute her, and said, Signora, my horse is tired, and I am seeking for a resting place. Can I have shelter under your roof? Yes, caballero, why not? She returned in a voice even more significant of sorrow than her countenance. I thanked her, and waited for her to lead the way but she still remained standing before me, with eyes cast down, and a hesitating, troubled look on her face. Signora, I began, if a stranger's presence in the house would be inconvenient. No, no, Signor, it is not that, she interrupted quickly. Then, sinking her voice, almost to a whisper, she said, Tell me, Signor, have you come from the department of Florida? Have you... have you been at San Paolo? I hesitated a little, then answered that I had. On which side? she asked quickly, with a strange eagerness in her voice. Ah, Signora, I returned. Why do you ask me, only a poor traveller, who comes for a night's shelter, such a question? Why, perhaps for your good, Signor. "'Remember, women are not like men, implacable. "'A shelter you shall have, senor, but it is best that I should know. "'You are right,' I returned. "'Forgive me for not answering you at once. "'I was with Santa Coloma, the rebel. "'She held out her hand to me, but before I could take it, withdrew it, "'and covering her face, began to cry.' Presently recovering herself and turning towards the house, she asked me to follow. Her gestures and tears had told me eloquently enough that she too belonged to the unhappy Blanco party. Have you then lost some relation in this fight, Signora? I asked. No, Signor, she replied. But if our party had triumphed, Perhaps deliverance would have come to me. Ah, no! I lost my relations long ago, all except my father. You shall know presently when you see him why our cruel enemies refrained from shedding his blood by that time, we had reached a the house. there had once been a veranda to it, but this had long fallen away, leaving the walls, doors, and windows. Exposed to sun and rain. Lichen covered the stone walls, while in the crevices and over the tiled roof, weeds and grass had flourished. But this vegetation had died with the summer heats and was now parched and yellow. She led me into a spacious room, so dimly lighted from the low door and one small window that it seemed quite dark to me coming from the bright sunlight i stood for a few moments trying to accustom my eyes to the gloom while she advancing to the middle of the apartment bent down and spoke to an aged man seated in a leather-bound easy chair papa she said i have brought in a young man a stranger who has asked for shelter under our roof welcome him papa then she straightened herself, and, passing behind the chair, stood leaning on it, facing me. "'I wish you good day, signor,' I said, advancing with a little hesitation. There before me sat a tall, bent old man, wasted almost to a skeleton, with a grey, desolate face, and long hair and beard of a silver whiteness. He was wrapped in a light-colored poncho and wore a black skull-cap on his head. When I spoke, he leant back in his seat and began scanning my face, with strangely fierce, eager eyes, all the time twisting his long, thin fingers together in a nervous, excited manner. "'What Calixto?' he exclaimed at length. Is this the way you come into my presence? Ha! You thought I would not recognize you. Down. Down, boy, on your knees. I glanced at his daughter standing behind him. She was watching my face anxiously and made a slight inclination with her head. Taking this as an intimation to obey the old man's commands, I went down on my knees and touched my lips to the hand he extended may god give you grace my son he said with tremulous voice then he continued what did you expect to find your old father blind then i would know you amongst a thousand calixto ah my son my son why have you kept away so long stand my son and let me embrace you he rose up tottering from his chair and threw his arm about me then after gazing into my face for some moments deliberately kissed me on both cheeks ah calixto he continued putting his trembling hands upon my shoulders and gazing into my face out of his wild sunken eyes do I need ask where you have been? Where should a Peralta be but in the smoke of the battle, in the midst of carnage, fighting for the banda oriental? I did not complain of your absence, Calixto. Demetria will tell you that I was patient through all these years, for I knew you would come back to me at last wearing the laurel wreath of victory. And I, Calixto, what have I worn sitting here? A crown of nettles. Yes, for a hundred years I have worn it. You are my witness, Demetria, my daughter, that I have worn this crown of stinging nettles for a hundred years. He sank back apparently exhausted in his chair, and I uttered a sigh of relief, thinking the interview was now over. But I was mistaken. His daughter placed a chair for me at his side. "'Sit here, senor, and talk to my father while I have your horse taken care of,' she whispered, and then quickly glided from the room. This was rather hard on me, I thought but while whispering those few words, she touched my hand lightly, and turned her wistful eyes with a grateful look on mine, and I was glad for her sake that I had not blundered. Presently, the old man roused himself again, and began talking eagerly, asking me a hundred wild questions, to which I was compelled to reply, still trying to keep up the character, of the long-lost son just returned victorious from the wars tell me where you have fought and overcome the enemy he exclaimed raising his voice almost to a scream where have they flown from you like chaff before the wind where have you trodden them down under your horses hoofs name Name the places and the battles to me, Calixto. I felt strongly inclined just then to jump up and rush out of the room, so trying was this mad conversation to my nerves. But I thought of his daughter Demetria's white, pathetic face, and restrained the impulse. Then, in sheer desperation, I began to talk madly as himself. I thought I would make him sick of warlike subjects. Everywhere, I cried, we had defeated, slaughtered, scattered to the four winds of heaven the infamous Colorados. From the sea to the Brazilian frontier, we have been victorious. With sword, lance, and bayonet, we have stormed and taken every town from Tacuarembó to Montevideo. Every river from the Yaguaron to the Uruguay had run red with Colorado blood. In forests and sierras we had hunted them, flying like wild beasts from us. We had captured them in thousands, only to cut their throats, crucify them, blow them from guns, and tear them limb by limb to pieces with wild horses. I was only pouring oil on the blazing fire of his insanity. "'Ah!' he shouted, his eyes sparkling, while he wildly clutched my arm with his skinny, claw-like hands. "'Did I not know? Have I not said it? Did I not fight for a hundred years, wading through blood every day, and then at last send you forth to finish the battle?' and every day our enemies came and shouted in my ears, Victory! Victory! They told me you were dead, Calixto, that their weapons had pierced you, that they had given your flesh to be devoured of wild dogs, and I shouted with laughter to hear them. I laughed in their faces and clapped my hands and cried out, Prepare your throats for the sword traitors slaves assassins for a peralta even calixto devoured of wild dogs is coming to execute vengeance what will god not leave one strong arm to strike at a tyrant's breast one peralta in all this land Fly, miscreants die wretches he has risen from the grave he has come back from hell, armed with hell-fire, to burn your towns to ashes, to extirpate you utterly from the earth. His thin, tremulous voice had risen towards the close of this mad speech to a reedy shriek that rang through the quiet, darkening house like the long, shrill cry of some waterfowl heard at night in the desolate marshes then he loosened his hold on my arm and dropped back moaning and shivering into his seat his eyes closed his whole frame trembled and he looked like a person just recovering from an epileptic fit then he seemed to sink to sleep it was now getting quite dark for the sun had been down some time and it was with the greatest relief that I saw Doña Demetria gliding like a ghost into the room. She touched me on the arm and whispered, Come, senor, he is asleep now. I followed her out into the fresh air, which had never seemed so fresh before. Then, turning to me, she hurriedly whispered, Remember, senor, that what you have told me is a secret. Say not one word of it to any other person here. End of chapter twenty two.